welcome to another episode of the MDS podcast. Today we have Christelle Nilet, first author of the paper titled Diagnosis and Outcomes of Late Wilson's Disease, a National Register-based study. This paper was published recently in Movement Disorder Journal. The study describes the clinical, biochemical, and imaging features of adult-onset Wilson's disease and also highlights interesting findings that may pose a diagnostic challenge for clinicians. We're happy to have Dr. Christelle Niles here to explain about the study and the main findings as well. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Niles. Hello. Thank you very much for the introduction. So, Dr. Niles, I guess we could start by you describing briefly about the study design and how those patients with adult onset Wilson's disease were identified. Tell us about that. Yes, of course. So we did this observational longitudinal study in which we included patients with Wilson's disease diagnosed after the age of 40 years old. And it was a French study, so they were recruited in different cities in France. And we decided to classify them according to their mode of diagnosis or revelation of the disease. So there were the neurological group, the hepatic group, and the screening group. So for example, someone mm -hmm. who would have the typical neurological symptoms, for example, dystonia, tremor, Parkinsonism, will have the neurological phenotype, although they could have also some liver abnormalities associated to it. And then the hepatic patients will enter the disease with liver disease. So abnormalities in the ultrasound or cirrhosis, for example. And then mm -hmm. the third group was diagnosed through screening. So mainly those patients were relatives of patients with Wilson's disease. So we described these patients at baseline, demographic characteristics, clinical exam, sleep lamp examination, brain MRI, the copper test and the liver ultrasound and fibro scan. And we also described these same characteristics at the last follow-up. And the aim of the study was to describe these forms, which are not well known in the literature, and mm -hmm. to search for some specificities or differences in comparison to the classic forms in younger patients. And from all the patients in this French registry with Wilson's disease, how many patients with adult onset did you find? Is it rare, extremely rare, or is it something that you knew you were going to find in your registry? We found 45 patients. And at the time of the registry, because we included patients between 1974 and so in 2016, there were 552 patients. Mm -hmm. So that would be 8% of the registry, which is not a lot, but maybe more than one would expect. For example, if you take the only other case series of patients with Wilson's disease with a late onset form, the study published like 10 years ago or so, which was a European study, they had also 46 patients, but at that time it represented 4% of the sample. So yeah, we found twice more, maybe because of improvements in screening or discoveries of new mutations. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's interesting and important data, I think. Yeah. I wonder if in the, this particular cohort or subpopulation of this registry with more than 40 years of onset, these Wilson's patients, 
I had similar presentation as those with childhood adolescent onset or they're different or do they look very atypical? Do they have the classical imaging features or biochemical features? Are there any differences? That's one of the questions. Thank you for your question. So to me, the most interesting finding in the study is in the neurologic group. So there were 20 patients. We divided it into two subgroups. So there were 14 patients with, I would say, classic and neurological Wilson's disease with dystonia, Parkinsonism, gait abnormalities. And they all had the typical hyperintensities on the brain MRI. Most of them had a caser flexion wing and they all had abnormal copper lab tests. But for six of the patients with neurological forms, the symptoms were quite unexpected. So two of them, and they were brothers, which is also interesting, they presented with Bieter's cramp. So one of them mm -hmm. for 10 years before the diagnosis was made, and then he developed at that time more symptoms and the other brother in one year only. Another patient presented with cervical dystonia, but an isolated one with no other symptom. Another one with isolated long-standing for 10 years, dysotria, and two of them with functional movement disorders, which is quite atypical, which has been reported in the literature in one case, to my knowledge, with Wilson's disease, but like it's two out of six patients of this group. So that was quite striking and functional movement disorders. So for one of them, it was paroxysmal myoclonus of the uh -huh. head and the arms. And the other one was transient and inconsistent tremor of forelimbs, which obviously led to the diagnosis several years after. Yeah. And with these patients, did you find abnormalities in the brain MRI that were highly suggestive or Wilson's or were they completely different? Well, <clears throat> that's the thing we didn't find in these patients, the typical hyperintensities on the T2 and flare sequences. Only one of these six patients with atypical neurological forms had a caser flexion wing. Mm -hmm. The one thing we did notice is that four of them did have some mild atrophy of the brain, which has been reported in Wilson's disease. But all of them had abnormal copper tests with abnormal relative exchangeable copper, and they were genetically confirmed, these cases. Although three mutations were novel, they were considered with a high probability of pathogenicity. I understand. In regarding the treatment, is there any data that suggests that the patients with atypical presentations may respond in the same manner as those with typical presentation? Or are there differences? Or do we expect them more difficult to treat with the conventional Wilson's treatment? Yeah, well, most of them improved or stayed stable. So we had data in 19 of them and of the 20 at baseline and 16 of them improved or stayed stable. And within the three who uh, worsened clinically and on MRI, one of them was one of the atypical form and he worsened because of polyneuropathy due mm -hmm. to a copper deficiency due to the treatment, right? So it yeah. developed after 28 years, I think, after the mm -hmm. diagnosis, after 20 years of treatment. So he had several treatments at that time, deep penicillamine, trentin, and zinc salts. He did develop this polyneuropathy, which did improve after the cessation of the treatments, but he still mm -hmm. very much 
bothered by gait abnormalities and sensory symptoms. And this is really something to monitor. It has been reported in other patients. So it's not sure, but it's very specific to this late onset form. And what was the oldest patient identified within this adult cohort, just to have an idea about their range of age presentation? So the oldest one was 64 and diagnosis, and the mean age at diagnosis was 49. But I believe in the literature, there was a report of people aged 70. We don't have the oldest one. <laughs> yeah, and in terms of all the differences within this subgroup, so you mentioned that you had neurological, you have hepatic presentations, and the other extended screening. So... Is there any different trajectories or severities in these different groups? So regarding the hepatic group, mm -hmm. so we had 13 patients and 10 patients of them at diagnosis had cirrhosis, including seven with decompensated cirrhosis. And overall, seven of them needed the liver transplantation at some point. So I would mm -hmm. say that these are quite severe forms to look for. At last follow-up, they mostly improved, so that's good news. And in the screening group, so we had 12 patients. One was actually diagnosed incidentally in the workup of repeated vagal malaise, so that mm -hmm. would be very typical as well. One thing that was striking to us in the people diagnosed via screening is that three of them were not treated. There was a consensual decision not to treat these patients because they were not symptomatic. They had normal copper tests. Mm -hmm. They were doing well. And so they were not treated. They just followed a low copper diet. Interestingly, mm -hmm. after two years, seven years and seven years, they didn't worsen clinically. So that's just an interesting side story, right? The goal of the paper is not to say that we shouldn't treat Wilson's disease because obviously we do, but that's something interesting. Yeah, it, indeed, I agree. It's interesting that even with this classical patients with Wilson disease, when you start treatment, there's no uniformity on how the patients are going to respond despite being well-treated and biochemically improved. You either have some residual symptoms or some persistent symptoms, so it's not something you expect that all patients are going to improve. There's also something that they're still having with symptoms. And with that story that you're telling that some patients not being treated but not being clinically bad, that means there's something that may modify the expression of the disease. Do you think, is there any genetic modifier, any possible sort of haplotype or something that may be changing the trajectory of Wilson's disease expression? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, that's... Overall, with these findings, I guess this is really something to look for from now on because we don't know why these patients express their symptoms later on and what it does influence the treatment response and the outcome. And mm -hmm. this is highly important because it's a treatable genetic yep. disease. And then just to wrap up the conversation, could you give some clinical pointers or clinical pearls to clinicians about how to look for patients with Wilson disease that present over the age of 40? Well, I guess 
you should look for the classic symptoms, of course, because most of our patients had the classic symptoms. For most difficult cases, I guess you really should look for clues in the history. So I'm thinking of family history that sometimes patients are not completely sure or psychiatric history. Quite a few of our patients had history of depression or psychotic events or anorexia or a cytopenia, like two or three of them, I think. And these are clues, I will not say red flags, but some hints that could make you think of that. And yeah, I guess you should broaden your horizons in front of functional movement disorders because we had two of them. And the lab test is not so difficult to ask for. So when we have a doubt, we should ask for it. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Christelle Nileth, for telling us about your story in this interesting study on Wilson's disease. And I invite all the audience to read the paper, Diagnosis and Outcomes of Late Onset Wilson's Disease, published now in Movement Disorder Journal. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you again in another MDS podcast episode. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.